0: Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host and daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Compassionate Friends and the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. And today, Heidi, we're going to talk to somebody who we've had on our TV show, Janet Burroway, and I'm excited about having her on because we're going to talk about riding your way through grief. And this is a woman who can tell you about writing. Well, Heidi, why don't you talk about what she's done?
1: is an incredible writer and has won awards. Her name is Janet Burroway, and as you said, she was on our cable show as well. She is the author of plays, poetry, children's books, and eight novels, including The Buzzards, Raw Silk, Opening Nights, and The Bridge of Sand. Her writing fiction, ninth edition, is the most widely used creative writing text in America. Her book, Finding Tim, is based on the death of her son, Tim. She is Robert and Distinguished Professor, Amarada, at Florida. State University and winner of the 2014 Florida Lifetime Achievement in Writing Award. Welcome to the show, Janet. My pleasure. Nice to be on.
0: It's so great to have you on. And I'm going to kind of give a little backstory, Janet, and you can chime in because I do want to get to the writing part, people writing their way through grief and what it's done for you. But a little backstory is I'm right, your son, Tim. He, was, he had served in the military and he had served in Iraq, but he was doing landmines for the Civilian Corps, right? Yes.
2: He had learned mine removal in the Army, but then they privatized the job that he had in the Army. So by the time he went to Iraq, he was working for a contractor rather than directly for the Army.
0: And he was living there with his wife and one child, is that right, as I remember? He
2: had a stepson and also a small daughter.
0: Right. And he had always used a lot of guns, and he ended up dying by shooting himself. You were mainly a fiction writer, and I wonder, because I know there are people that are listening who are compelled to write, even though they hadn't been writers, and you had been a writer. What was different for you? Did you hesitate? Did you think about, do I really want to write about this tough topic?
2: No. I I never for a moment questioned it. I think it's different If writing is the way that you always try to make sense of life's chaos, then it's pretty well automatic to go to it. But I think that a lot of people who don't spend their lives writing also feel that I have to contain what I'm feeling in some way and it helps to put it down. But also for the next couple of months, I just flashed everything I was feeling down on the computer, the thing that I was feeling. And I went through it two or three times a day, I think. You know, just n- not attempting to write. I wasn't trying to make beautiful prose. I was just trying to contain the feelings that I was having.
1: So Janet, it sounds like it was cathartic.
2: It was. Way, you
1: kind of it was released.
2: Okay. And no. I think that a lot of people do find out.
0: One wow. thing I find with writing is that if you write it down... You don't have to keep trying to remember it. You know what I mean? It's there if you want to go back to it.
2: Absolutely. And in fact, as I was doing this journaling of what I was feeling every day, it occurred to me at some point that what I'm putting into my journal is not really the pattern of my daily thoughts, that really I'm writing about grief, but half the time I'm remembering, Tim. I'm remembering In the early days after his death, those memories were full of grief as well. Later on, the memories became precious again, you know? Mm -hmm. But in those early days, I realized that I was only recording what I was feeling and not what I was remembering, so then I started remembering. I started writing my memories of him as well, and then it became a powerful um, motivation for me that I wanted to catch everything I remember, that didn't want to let go of it.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I said to you when we were at Heidi's apartment having a little get-together after with the TV show, I said the thing that fascinates me about reading a book by a professional writer, because I read a lot of books for people that are going to be on the show who've written about their children, but oftentimes, mainly, they're usually chronological. This is what happened, this is what happened. But what was interesting to me about your book is that It's not that way. They'll be, okay, this is what I did this morning, but then it'll be, this reminds me of a morning when Tim was eight or something. Very different.
2: When I realized that there was a book in what I was writing down and that it might be a book that could be helpful to other people, then I began looking at how I could use some of this material. So the book ended up as being roughly two chronologies, what I'm going through day after day, as the mother of a child who committed suicide. And what I'm remembering from his babyhood and then his toddlerhood and his childhood and, and his growing into a young man. So there are roughly two chronologies. But as you say, sometimes I violate that as well. And, and just this morning reminds me of a morning when.
1: And then I would tell about that.
0: Will, how do you had a comment about how the book begins. Do you want to say something about that?
1: My mom and I were talking before the show about how the book begins with every suicide is a suicide bomber. And why did you begin the book in this way? And what do you mean by that?
2: Well, those are two different things. It's It's a shocking beginning. I was going to begin the book by talking about the phone call I got with this terrible news, which was so shocking that there's almost no way to convey it in words. And so when that phrase occurred to me, every suicide is a suicide bomber, I thought that's shocking in the way that I was shocked when I got that phone call. So that's a good way to begin by shocking the reader. What I mean by it is that I think that my son was deeply depressed, disillusioned with the war in Iraq, and himself grieving and trapped in his own thoughts. I don't think that he meant to hurt anybody by taking his own life. But he hurt us all. Mm-hmm. And, so, and I think there's no way that you can commit suicide without the shrapnel flying in every direction to your friends and your family. Mm-hmm. And keep flying, you know. <laughs> the, the, right. wound, the wound
1: lasts for a long time. I like that metaphor, Janet. Just the fact that when someone takes their life, the shrapnel flies and it, it just spreads all over. I mean, it hurts so many. And, and like you said, when people die by suicide, they, they just want to be out of their pain. And sometimes they think that they're a burden yeah. to others and yeah. don't realize the right. ramifications after they're gone, that it, it'll be so much more painful with them gone right. than right. it would right. have been if they had stayed. I'm just wondering, you know, Tim died by suicide, and suicide is such an issue right now with the military. And do you think that what happened yeah. with him being disenfranchised, et cetera, is what's happening with so many others out there that are taking their lives in the military?
2: Absolutely. The forward to my book was written by Jonathan Shea, who's a psychiatrist in Boston, who has dealt for 20 years with survivors of the Vietnam War. And what he talks about is a phrase that I had never heard before. He talks about moral injury. Mm. And I think that he finds this among soldiers who feel that they had volunteered for a situation in which they are now caught. They're now trapped. And if the, the higher ups make bad decisions, they are trapped doing something that they know to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that moral injury in that situation is as great a trauma as the actual violence of the, of the war. And I feel that's what happened to my son. He believed so strongly in the war. He thought they would find the WMDs. He, was, he thought Bush was handling it beautifully. And And when he got there, he was so horribly disillusioned he, he told his wife that at one time he was uh, going with a security convoy from the Army to a demining site and that American soldiers shot into a house. And he was, he, was, he was moral to the point of prudish, my son, and he was so <laughs> shocked that, that that could happen, even though all of us have read about it in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But this was before Abu Ghraib. I think, he, you know, there was, there was no suggestion to him that soldiers were misbehaving.
0: You know, I didn't realize that there are more than 330,000 men and women working in every profession imaginable uh, are not on active duty with the military, but serve as an integral part of the Army team to support the defense of our nation. I mean, that's incredible that there are so many people
2: happened very rapidly. After the drawdown after the Vietnam War in the military, the military force was much smaller. And then they began to build it up again. And they did so by hiring contractors so that by the time of the Iraq War, over half of the jobs that had always been done by the military were being done by contractors, from potato peeling to mine removal to food supply to security, you know, all of these jobs have been farmed out to private firms.
0: And they don't have the support that the military does.
2: Absolutely not. This is one of the things that I wanted to point out in the book, that the American public has conflated, and and I, I blame journalism for this, has conflated the idea of the rapacious contractor after an American government contract that will make them a lot of money. And the employees, some of whom get very little. My son was very well paid, but he was also there because he was a patriot. Right. Not because he was a mm-hmm. contractor. You know, And I think that there has been a lot of at least lip service to the honor of our brave young men and women in the armed forces. But contractors are get none of that. And many of them are veterans. Most of them are veterans.
0: So I wanted to ask you, getting back to your writing of the book, was there any aha moment for you in this book where you came to a better understanding of why you think Tim took his life?
2: That's a very interesting question. Heidi, I noticed that in your introduction, you misspoke Mm -hmm. and you called the book Finding Tim instead of Losing Tim, which I love. (laughs) I I was was the the one one that did that. (laughs) Well, I love that because that turned out to be the purpose of the book. You know, as I was putting it together, how can I find my son and understand what it was that he did? And I think the answer is that you have to come to some understanding that's satisfying to you. You never will come to a full understanding. I traced all of the clues that came after his death things that he said to various of his friends and to his wife and to his stepson, and tried to sink myself into the situation he was in when he came home to Namibia in southern Africa, where there was very little support for the war. And at one point he said, "Um, I'm tired of being the bad man. And and that's heartbreaking to me, Mm -hmm. that he came to feel that about himself when he had been so devoted to the warrior spirit and to his patriotism and so forth. At any rate, um, you asked about aha moments, and I think there there was not an aha moment. There were several moments when people said things to me that were hugely helpful, and I've tried to include all of those in the book, and there were moments when I was told something that Tim had said or done, that I thought, that's a little piece of the explanation. But I can't say that there was a moment that I said, Ah, now I understand. You know, you never totally
0: understand. Well, Janet, I wanted to ask you to talk. I know people that are listening to this are like, wow, you know, I would like to write a book or I've been working on it or I've got all my notes together, but I don't know how to go about it. And I know you're speaking at the Writers' Conference in L.A. probably this spring and people can go online and look at it. And do you want to talk a little bit about the conference for people who are interested in figuring out how to put it all together?
2: Yeah, it's actually in the spring of 2016 in L.A., and I ought to be able to tell you the date, but I cannot. <laughs> you can look it up. It's Associated Writing Programs, AWP, and you can look it up online this way. It's AWP Writer, so A
0: dot rorg And there'll probably be like 15,000 people there with all sorts of workshops. There will be
2: 15,000 people of whom 11,000 are already writers. <laughs> and there are dozens and dozens of panels about how to do this and how to do that and how to begin and how to go on, you know. And there will probably be panels, I may be on one, about the writing of Elegy. And it's an enormously supportive and and wonderful place to be. It's kind of daunting that there are that many writers in America.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell people where they can get your book, Losing Tim. It's a wonderful book, and it's got all sorts of great information and great thoughts. And Janet's been really forthcoming about the death of her son. And I think it's very helpful from not only a structural point of view, if you want to be a writer and write yours, or just human point of view. And it's a good read. Also, let me say before she tells us, because it'll be part of this Mm -hmm. too, if you're thinking about writing fiction, you need to get her book on writing fiction because it's in its ninth edition. That says a whole lot, Janet. <laughs>
2: Thank you. If people could go to my website, which is just www.denatburlway.com, and it will give you the information about writing fiction and the other textbook, write the imaginative writing. But to buy Losing Tim, it's all the usual suspects, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Just look up either my name or the title Losing Tim, and it'll pop up. Mm -hmm. If the publisher is Think Peace in Minneapolis,
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Janet, and it's delightful to talk to you, and I hope you have a
2: great day. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Gloria.
1: Thank you, Janet, and thank you so much for all your writing, and thank you for helping people find hope after loss through your writing. Oh, uh, and thank you for that, your work in that way.
0: Well, Heidi, Janet's an amazing person, and it's so fun to have a professional writer on, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. That's what I was thinking about her book, which is called Losing Tim. I was laughing that I was saying Finding Tim. I would highly recommend people get it because, like you said, she is a writer. So not only does she tell the story, but she tells it eloquently and, and, and pulls you right into it.
0: Yep, absolutely. Well, we want to thank you all for listening today, and we want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours till you find your own, and God bless.